Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner. I'm super pumped for today's episode, not only because we're addressing some really critical issues at a pivotal time for our state, just two weeks or so from an election of enormous consequence, but in addition, this episode is our first in collaboration with the Center for Community Solutions, which is now helping us to improve the show and expand its reach. The goal, as always, is to grow the show into a sustainable and engaging platform for discussions about all aspects of health and healthcare in Ohio. This new collaboration will in many ways help us to keep doing what Prognosis Ohio has been doing already, that is, engaging with policymakers, experts of various sorts, advocates, students, and a whole range of others whose voices we think are important to amplify. But with community solutions support, we'll be able to do this in a way that leverages their expertise, as well as the trust the organization has earned over many years as a nonpartisan think tank focused on devising solutions to challenges in health and healthcare here in Ohio. As longtime Prognosis Ohio listeners already know, we've had Lauren Anthes from Community Solutions on a number of times to give us his hot takes on current developments around the state. We've spotlighted other aspects of the organization's work as well. Today, I'm thrilled to be able to begin to expand the circle by welcoming health equity expert Hope Lane Gavin to the show to talk about some data sheets Community Solutions has released in advance of the gubernatorial election. Hope is a health equity fellow at Community Solutions, where she currently works primarily in the Columbus office on issues including public benefits, maternal health, and racism as a public health crisis. Prior to this role, she served as the Public Policy and External Affairs Associate at Community Solutions and also served in the Ohio Legislature, first as a fellow with the Ohio Legislative Service Commission, where she worked with the House Minority Caucus, and then as a senior legislative aide to Representative Kelly, where she focused on issues like work and wages, government transparency, and gender fairness in the tax code. Before turning to my conversation with Hope, just a quick reminder to please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and check out our extensive show notes and episode archive at prognosisohio.com. We'd of course love your support through Patreon, but even more than that, we'd appreciate it if you take just a minute to give us some stars and a quick review online. It really helps us. Okay, that's enough prefacing for now. Let's get to the main event, my conversation with Hope Lane Gavin of the Center for Community Solutions. Hope Lane Gavin, thanks so much for being on the show. Absolutely. So Community Solutions is well known around Ohio for its colorful, easy to read fact sheets, compiling health and human service data for all sorts of jurisdictions. And the goal of these sheets is to help policymakers and advocates identify needs and gaps of which there are many. Right, uh, right. As we're going to talk about. <laughs> and, and the real hope, of course, is that you know, those working in policy are going to use these data as the foundation for advocacy. That's ultimately what we need. So we're going to be posting links at prognosisohio.com to all the fact sheets themselves. There's a lot of details there. I'd like to start by asking you to highlight the high level kind of takeaway from these sheets before we get into too many details, kind of what what do you get when you take them as a whole? Yeah, absolutely, Dan. So the sheets, there's one sheet for every, each of our priority areas. So those are maternal and child health, older adults, Medicaid, the safety net program, and behavioral health. So there's one sheet dedicated to all five. They're all around health and human services, right? So they're the health and human services, the state of health and human services. That's the point of the sheets. And so um, there's quite a few high-level takeaways um, from the sheets um, around these topics. But I want to start off by saying we don't claim that these topics are the comprehensive end-all, be-all to health and human service policy in the state, uh, nor do we think we pulled out everything there is to be said around these topics, right? So right. these topics are simply the state of health and human 
human services from our perspective, from our priorities. And so if you look at the maternal and child health piece, um, Ohio, like we said, the rest of the country um, is continuing to face an infant and maternal health crisis uh, with black families facing the brunt of that. So black babies are 2.7 times more likely to die um, before their first birthday. Um, we're 42nd in infant mortality in the whole country. Uh, black women are 2.5 times more likely to die uh, due to a pregnancy related cause. So this she uh, should really just be the state of public health, uh, if you will, because we know um, you can tell a lot about a community's public health infrastructure by their maternal and um, child health outcomes. And these data, you know, when I look at the the sheets themselves, these were in some ways the least surprising, but also really important to note because they are lingering, they're persistent, they haven't changed. They've actually, in a way, every once in a while we'll say, oh, you know, uh, Ohio's infant mortality or maternal mortality rates may be doing a little bit better, but the disparities keep getting worse. Right. So just the fact that here we are on the verge of of a an election to say, we're not getting there, folks. Right. right. That, that seems to me right. to be one of the takeaways. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, uh, you can tell a lot about our state's infrastructure, our public health infrastructure, when you start looking at these maternal and um, infant health outcomes, right? So if we can't take care of those most vulnerable among us, those in the hospital, we're talking about infants, we're talking about mothers who have just given birth. Like if we can't take care of them, that says a lot about our public health infrastructure as a state. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I wanted to lead, you know, with the maternal and child health um, sheet and outcomes, because again, those are telling about the state of public health, right? In our state, if we're not taking care of them, then who are we taking care of? And this one jumps out to me as being especially relevant to the gubernatorial race, right? because as many people know and listeners will know, we've talked about on this show, Governor Wine, when he came into office, made infant and maternal health a real focus. Yes, I mean, absolutely. He held a big event. He appointed women, women yeah. of color in several cases yep. to some of the top agencies. Yep. I mean, he made this a thing that he wanted to say. I'm going to stake my territory out with this. Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, does that get a kind of special place then in how we think about the overall Yeah, picture? yeah, certainly. So, you know, the legislature and the administration, they made incredible investments. We can't lie. They made incredible investments um, in infant and maternal health um, over the past two years. And if you look at the last state budget, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about the, the upcoming state budget um, in a few, but if you look at the last state budget, you know, Ohio led the way um, among states to adopt the 12 months postpartum coverage mm-hmm. um, Uh, for uh, women um, and pregnant people who have just given birth on the Medicaid program. So previously, um, before this investment was made, if you qualified for Medicaid because you were pregnant, um, you were subsequently kicked off the program after 60 days post-birth. So this allowed 10 additional months, again, of Medicaid coverage for that population. So that was a huge investment. Um, But, you know, the combination of the, the, you know, we're not investing in other places like our WIC program, um, the public health emergency, emergency, all of those things, our outcomes are still not not where they should be, despite the the few investments that were made. Yeah, and we did episodes on the postpartum uh, developments, and that was a really, really, I mean, I was almost shocked that it happened because it was a really great thing to right. happen in our state. Right. We don't always get really great no. things to happen in the health sector. Right. On the other side, though, when you move to another one of the sheets that you've uh, put out, we talk about 
elder care and mm-hmm. talk about health care for older Ohioans. I wonder if we can just flip there because it's interesting. We talk about maternal and infant care, and then we think about the, the, uh, some of the data there. I mean, a 73.3% increase in reports of elder abuse, neglect, and exploitation. Right? Yeah. That is, I mean, that popped off the page. For Absolutely, me. Dan. Yeah. I mean, Ohio is an aging state. I think the stat was uh, by 2025, one in five Ohioans will be 60 and older. Um, and I mean, to summarize that sheet and the key theme of that sheet is, um, you know, Ohio's aging and our age-friendly services and infrastructure is abysmal. In the last state budget, actually, um, the the governor invested in um, adult protective services in a way that's never been um, invested in before. Um, so for the first time, I guess starting last year, all 88 counties had at least one designated APS person. Mm-hmm. So that could also contribute to the fact that there was a significant increase because the program wasn't even invested in up until the last budget. So the numbers that we were comparing, so 2018 and 2020, 2018 was a, a uh, in a state where not every single county had a, a designated person to literally call for a case to report. And in 2020, you know, we finally had an investment. We all at least had one person in each county. So, so if Ohioans, I mean, if Ohioans can't age in place in Ohio, I mean, do they go to Florida? I mean, is that the the the, the state like legislature's like goal? I mean, like if we're failing in this way, this is going to have huge consequences for what our state looks like. Right. And also, there's a kind of like dignity issue yeah. here of just not being able to live in a state that you've given so much. Right, to. right, right. Our nursing homes are struggling. Staffing is struggling. You know, our older adults are food insecure at unprecedented rates. It's 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 like I said, it's uh, our age friendly services are in our infrastructure for older adults is abysmal. Unfortunately. So the Center for Community Solutions does fantastic work. Uh, You and your colleagues, we've had Lauren Anthes on this show talking about Medicaid. And Medicaid gets its own um, sheet here. (laughs) Whoever wins this election takes the governor's office. What is the the state of Medicaid they're going to find? So actually, um, and and I'm sure we'll talk about this in in a few, Dan, but... um, you can't talk about the current state of Medicaid without talking about the public health emergency. So because of the COVID pandemic and because of an agreement between states and the federal government, states have been unable to disenroll people from the Medicaid program if they accept this enhanced federal match for the Medicaid program. So Medicaid, I'm sure you know this, is a state and federal collaborative program. And so because of the pandemic, though, we've been receiving, um, we're not the only state, but we've been receiving enhanced federal match in exchange for, again, not disenrolling anybody from the program. So so Medicaid is going to see this is going to be the most affected um, when the public health emergency is over. So right now, people are on Medicaid. They haven't been redetermined. So they haven't had to recertify. They haven't had to have their interviews and their data and, and all of the, the income and all of that stuff checked in years. And so what you're going to face is so right now, I guess the program is healthy until the public health emergency is over and it starts to unwind. Right. And yeah. so you're going to have people that haven't had to recertify. You're going to have people who um, are just suddenly kicked off the program. You're going to have children kicked off the program. Um, it's going to be um, that's why we've been kind of calling it the public health emergency unwind because right. we need to figure out the best way um, and the most efficient way to get these people um, onto that are going to inevitably be kicked off the program onto another employer sponsored program, the healthcare marketplace, something else, because um, we're going to be facing a huge, huge, huge influx of people um, that are kicked off the Medicaid program. And, and Medicaid is an absolute foundation of 
health in this state. Absolutely. And not only was it was already a foundation of health in the state before the pandemic, right? But your report shows six hundred and sixty thousand more Ohioans. Let yep. me say that again: six hundred and sixty thousand more Ohioans are on Medicaid now in the wake of the pandemic. Yeah. So if we're talking about an unwind, or I think of a cliff yep. that we may be looking at, yep. um, it, it just got bigger. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have to figure out the best way, again, to get this population of people. Because, again, Medicaid plays in a crucial role as a work support, right? You can't go to work if you're not healthy. As um, infant mortality, uh, as a, a way to combat infant mortality and so many other things, work support, social services, all of those things. Um, Medicaid plays a crucial role. And we have to figure out, again, how to unwind it in a way that makes sense. I love what you just said, by the way, because if you follow the, the, the discussions we've had about Medicaid over the last bunch of years, there was all this discussion about, oh, we need people on Medicaid to be working and work requirements. And then the, the courts got involved right, and right, shot right. them all down. And now with the Biden administration, most of those work requirements have gone away. But what you said is, no, you actually need people. Medicaid becomes a foundation for people to be able to work, which is a flip of that script. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Like if you can't, we used to say in the SNAP space, like you can't earn if you can't learn, you can't earn if you can't eat or you can't learn if you can't go to the doctor. Like if, yeah. there's a saying here in the health and human service space about SNAP and how all of this stuff acts as, again, a work support, right? Let's talk a little bit about food insecurity. You know, you talk about just the, the, the state of the social safety net in Ohio, uh, and there's a bunch of pieces on, on the, the fact sheet that are worth getting into. But in, in the interest of time, I mean, it just it strikes me that food insecurity is an issue that was already pretty bad, uh, you know, really pressing in the state. The pandemic has certainly intensified this. And some of the data you, you share in this fact sheet is just stunning to me. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And so, again, you can't talk about uh, food insecurity in this state without talking about the public health emergency again. And so, um, so because of COVID and a bunch of COVID temporary programming, um, we actually have had an influx of uh, food and nutrition assistance hit the state. And it's been um, incredible, actually. And so people who, um, I don't, I don't want to get too wonky, but essentially, you know, temporary pandemic programming, like uh, school meals, all kids in all schools were getting free school meals for the mm -hmm. past two school years. Um, that has since gone away. So now we're talking about, um, you know, shaking the governor and, and the administration on, um, you know, trying to provide free breakfast for all, which the sheet indicates would only cost us $20 million. Right. <laughs> Just want to give that plug. But also, so you had two years of all kids in all schools getting free school meals. Um, you've seen child poverty go down because of that and relief checks, but we'll get into that later. Um, so food insecurity, though, um, the SNAP program, the, the some of the temporary pandemic programming and in, in initiatives um, allowed more access to the program. So remove some barriers, remove some of those interview requirements, remove some of those, um, we call them like paper tax, right? Um, so they want you to fill out so much paperwork that you just give up. And so um, some of that stuff that kept people out of the program, not because they weren't income eligible, but because, you know, paperwork and, and recertifications and all of the mail and all the notices, a lot of that stuff was eliminated. Yeah. In addition to that, though, you had um, what was called a SNAP emergency allotment. So that gave families a lot more in their SNAP allotment than before. Um, you also had um, in the WIC program, a lot of those, um, the WIC program is the Women and Infants 
and children's children's supplemental support program that provides mostly a lot of formula, but also um, fruits and vegetables, peanut butter, eggs, things like that for um, women and infants under five. Um, and so again, removing those barriers to just entry into the program that again, mo- more likely than not, they're not income. They're, they don't have anything to do with your income. It's just paperwork. And so they started removing the, the interview requirements, um, removing the some of these requirements that keep people out of the program. And so we have a healthy, again, um, SNAP caseload as well. I know that the numbers on the sheet reflect of food insecure Ohio. And again, we are food insecure, but gra- believe it or not, numbers are much better today than they were yeah. pre-pandemic. Yeah. And, and, you know, for those who may not be inclined to, you know, th- generally support an expansion of the social safety net, you know, uh, people who fancy themselves uh, fiscal conservatives, right. whatever you want to call it. I mean, it, it's really kind of amazing when you look at evidence-based practice around these things, just providing these things to everybody is generally more efficient right. and has that really in that, that, that other bonus of reducing stigma. Right. And that has huge mental health right. and behavioral health consequences. So you know, what I see in this, in this particular fact sheet is just a call for thinking smart about how to be most efficient and also kind of getting over some of our own, um, you know, biases about these kinds of programs. Yeah, absolutely. I think the safety net sheet as a whole proved that the safety net works, right, and can do more for Ohio. So if you even look at the cash assistance piece, um, the TANF program, the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, uh, which predominantly provides cash assistance and um, child care services in Ohio, um, but cash assistance in Ohio is only reaching 25% of the people that it should be. Mm -hmm. So 25% of of families with children in poverty. But you see the $583 million surplus in the same program. So we have a $583 million surplus in a program that's only serving 25% of the families that it should be. That's a problem. And again, these families, there's a myriad of reasons for this, um, but some of it is just the families, the paperwork, right? It's just just a paperwork tax. And so they just give up and they're just like, forget it. It's not worth it. And they move on. And so some of it is that, some of it is not, um, you know, a lack of cross-agency collaboration. So that's when um, a person applies for one program, but they're not, you know, immediately um, referred to another program that they're likely eligible for. But I think the overall theme of the safety net sheet is that the safety net works and it can be doing better in Ohio. So hope hang in there with us. We're on the fifth sheet now. <laughs> Thanks, listeners. For there's a lot to get out here, uh, you know, to process. And again, we're going to be linking to the sheets so that you know people can look at the details themselves. But let's talk about this fifth and final sheet, which is about behavioral health. And uh, I mean, we knew before the pandemic, we were talking about addiction in a big way. Addiction kind of got wiped off the media map for a while. And then surprise, surprise, people are suffering more from these things. They were suffering in silence and in isolation. And we have a worse situation on our hands in many ways than we had back in even 2019. So. Let's talk a little bit about that. What 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 pops there on these sheets? So we know um, the pandemic and the resulting loss and grief and isolation exacerbated an existing um, mental health crisis. And we know the pandemic also adversely impacted the opioid epidemic um, as there was rapid disruptions in care and in uh, rehabilitation efforts and safety nets and um, social and economic stressors led to um, an increase again. And so in behavioral health problems. And so these stressors actually led to 2020 
surpassing 2017 as the highest year for unintentional drug overdose. Um, And so if you also look at the sheets, you note the um, behavioral health sector and industry as a whole is facing a huge, huge workforce shortage, which results again in people not getting the care that they need. Um, So again, um, behavioral health, um, the state of behavioral health in Ohio is pretty bleak, unfortunately. And I think the pandemic certainly exacerbated that. You know, on the one hand, and I'm using my arms here, right? I mean, skyrocketing yeah. uh, increases in, in needs uh, for what, you know, Absolutely. to meet Ohioans' basic uh, behavioral health needs. And then this workforce shortage, mm-hmm. the kinds of facilities. And then there's also just massive regional disparity yeah. between rural and urban, so, you know, th- this kind of thing. So that's definitely going to be a real thicket for the next governor to, to Absolutely. Work Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Ohio prisons currently um, house more people with behavioral health problems than our six psychiatric facilities in um, the state. So that's... That says a lot as to kind of what the solutions have been um, over the past decade or two. Um, And so, I mean, we have to bolster this workforce. That's like number one on um, everyone's minds. And I think that'll be on the top of the minds in the state budget as we talk about solutions here soon. So those are the fact sheets, right? So, you know, and again, um, a lot of details there. We only kind of scratch the surface of them. There's a, there's a lot of really important data and different people are going to find different things that they're going to, you know, know more about or have personal experience with. But let's go to the high level here a little bit and, and, and reflect on these a bit. Pretty bleak in general, although you've, you know, gone to uh, taken pains to pull yeah. out the good things. Right, right, right. right. Postpartum care for 12 months. Yep. Excellent development yep. in our state. Thank you, Governor. Thank you, everybody who's done that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yet, uh, you know, a lot of challenges. Uh, and, and uh, you know, people might be kind of inclined to point back to the pandemic and say, listen, like, we just went through a pandemic. Like, you know, give the current leadership a break or mm-hmm. like we, you know, how do you process and how should people process kind of what these data say about what the pandemic's effect was And what is just kind of a continuation of the situation in our state? You know, it's complicated. Um, Some of this is just about who you ask, you know, about the impact the pandemic had on on HHS in Ohio um, and when you ask and and what you're talking about. And so we know, like we just talked about with the behavioral health um, sector um, and you know, is is huge. I mean, the impact on that sector, the, the loss, the isolation, um, the social distancing, the, you know, lack of digital literacy and, and access to, um, especially our older adults have suffered um, immensely because of, uh, again, isolation. Um, but we also know that, on the other hand, temporary pandemic programming, like we talked about with, you know, not disenrolling anybody from Medicaid, uh, we've gotten the pandemic EBT program, which gave um, Ohio school children and school children across the country um, access to um, a card. So so for their parents to replace the missed school meals while they were home um, during the thick of the pandemic. Um, we've had relief checks, which slash child poverty um, instrumentally. And again, we know that those things um, are temporary and they were part of the t- uh, pandemic solution, but they will have long lasting impacts. Again, child poverty is a great example. Um, we were able to slash it because of the pandemic. And so um, I say that to say, you know, it kind of depends on who you're asking and what you're talking about as to on the impact of the pandemic. Um, we know that, you know, do I, I actually wrote a paper about this um, a few months 
back, but we know that um, the infant mortality rate actually in Ohio um, s slightly decreased. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of attributed that to some of the temporary pandemic nutrition assistance, right? And so um, when you're giving families um, access to PEBT, so out of school meals, um, a lot of families really rely on the free breakfast and free school lunch. Um, and then when they weren't going to school, they didn't have it. And so now, so now parents had access to a card or that they could just go to the store and replace those meals themselves. We've never had anything like that before. Yeah. Um, even, you know, during the summers, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, even, um, you know, kids weren't getting free school meals, right? Yeah. And so we had never figured out this before um, as to how to get meals to to kids and parents during these off seasons, off br breaks and things. And um, and so I, I say all of this to say that there's, there's the good and the bad, right? But you're also pointing to something that will be counterintuitive to some folks. And, and, and for me, I think has a really important policy lesson. What you're kind of saying is, and what I see in these data, there are some things we did during the pandemic, during a, a massive public health emergency, a crisis, a health crisis, that showed us how we can do better. And actually we may have increased, because we, we put in, in place some policy supports, that we are now at the risk of you know having ripped underneath right. us, right? right? With the end of the public health right. uh, emergency. So we've learned these lessons, but it is possible that we've learned nothing because we attributed it to the pandemic instead of just learning what works yeah. to help people. Absolutely. Absolutely, Dan. Yeah. You know, part of our group is thinking about like, how do we or can we make some of this, any of it permanent, even if it's, you know, the PEBT program, the pan pandemic EBT program. Again, that's the um, program that gave uh, kids free school meals um, during the during the pandemic. And it actually is still going on. If you have a pandemic um, related uh, school um, absence, you can still have access to PEBT, but it's obviously much more scaled down than it was two years ago. But, you know, what does that look like permanently? Or what, is, what does summer PBT look like, you know, on a state level? It doesn't have to be the federal government. This mm -hmm. is something that Governor DeWine or Governor Whaley could implement is a summer, you know, program that gives parents, the low-income parents that are documented low-income, um, that filled out a free and reduced lunch sheet, for example, um, you know, gives them money for you. What would that do to our child poverty rate? What would that do to our, um, you know, Ohio um, food insecurity rate for children? You know, what what does this look like? And so those are ideas that we've been exploring, and I would love for the next, you know, governor, whoever they may be, to, to do the same thing. But you're pointing to, I mean, a phenomenon that, you know, people in my field of health policy or health services and public health people know this generally. You know, Governor Kasich acknowledged this back in the day, right? Medicaid, yeah, seemed like a lot of money, and it's, you know, it's a lot of money. But, you know, you pay one way or another way. Right. Either you're more efficient, yep. you pay on the front end or you pay on the back end. Yep. And there are all these efficiencies that you can build in. So when some people hear you say you can pay people money or give people money, you know, we need to process that and say, you know, because the choice is not, you know, whether you fund things or not. The question is where you fund things mm -hmm. and are you doing things in a smart way? Absolutely. So the final thing I'd like to talk about to kind of pull out of these data, and, and we're again, we're thinking about 2023. Mm -hmm. We're thinking about the next governor. Absolutely. These are written with the gubernatorial candidates in mind, but also generally for mm -hmm. all candidates, right? Anti-abortion groups have long identified the undoing of Roe versus Wade as a goal, right? And you know, now they've achieved that goal. So, you know, I, but I'm seeing a lot of evidence um, and even admissions from some folks who supported that, that they hadn't really thought about what next. They hadn't thought about the, fall, the fallout or, or what kind of consequences might be coming. You know, in my view, this is a kind of dereliction of judicial, legislative, and executive duty to not think about what next. But here we are. These CCS reports paint a, a grim picture of our current situation in many ways. 
And, you know, whatever your view is of abortion, it, it, it strikes me that the Dobbs decision stands to create a lot of really significant challenges. You talked about the unwinding of the public health emergency. I see this as another thing that is going to be happening, and especially in the area of infant and maternal health. Talk a little bit about, you know, the ways in which you see that being another potential confounder that whoever the governor is, is going to have to deal with the consequences of post-Roe you know, life, life under Dobbs. Yeah, absolutely, Dan. So if you look at, you know, all of these sheets, really, behavioral health, the safety net, Medicaid, they all go right into um, the maternal and infant health um, challenges and crisis, right? And so we know, um, even if, again, if you look at uh, the sheets independently of that sheet, <laughs> um, it's it, it all feeds right in, you know, access to uh, cash assistance, you know, is not happening in our state. One out of every four families are accessing it. That's, you know, in, uh, uh, in Ohio that allowed abortions. <laughs> um, so what does our data, you know, next year look like in the end of this year look like? What, what does that look like? Um, we also see in the sheets we have uh, we're struggling in, the, in our state with maternity deserts. So no access. There's 13 counties in our state without a single OBGYN in the whole county, mm. in the whole county um, and no um, hospital with a with a labor and delivery ward. Um, that doesn't mean that nobody can be born again in those hospitals, but it's not the safest. And so, you know, we already have all of these pro- these problems. We're 42nd in infant mortality, 28th in maternal mortality, you know, uh, 16th in uninsured rate, 36 in child poverty. So we have all of these really striking statistics. Um, and this is, again, in, a, in an Ohio that had access, right? And so, you know, Community Solutions is really thinking about this and the impact the Dobbs decision will have on our on our um, safety net, really, truly. That's clearly already strained. And so, you know, I was sitting here talking about, you know, how the one in five Ohio children um, are food insecure as if it's a good thing, right? Because, like, like it, it's better because we had these things, but it's really not a good thing. That's a problem. And again, this is in Ohio that abortion was allowed. <laughs> um, so thinking about access to, um, you know, an OBGYN in our state, thinking about access to a, we don't have any freestanding birthing centers. Um, we know that, you know, in addition to our behavioral health um, workforce shortage, we just have a general healthcare workforce shortage with nurses and doctors. And so um, we're really scared. Um, we're really scared to see what this looks like. If I'm being completely honest with you, um, what, a, what a post-Obs Ohio looks like. Like, I mean, we're terrified. If people weren't getting wick during the hardest, most unprecedented time in, in, in our country's history, like, how are they going to get it? Well, you use the word terrified, and, and sometimes I feel that way, too. I'm also, you know, just kind of ashamed sometimes of these things. And it's one of the things that I've never understood about the people who, you know, make these decisions in our state. I I, I think shame can be a bit more transformative. And I, I don't think anybody looks at the, the information on these fact sheets and says, yeah, nailing it, you know, and, and that's really important as we go into this, this electoral season. But even just the policy challenges ahead in 2023, uh, I'll just say, and I've explained this to listeners, you know, this is the first episode we're doing in, in collaboration with, with support from uh, Community Solutions. These are just the kind of conversations we need to be having. These are the kinds of data we need. We need to leverage the data, make sure that uh, policymakers are not only receiving the data and seeing it, but like feeling something like, hey, you're mm-hmm. in a position to actually act Do something, now. yeah. So you know, I, I thank you for taking us through this. Um, again, I encourage listeners to really spend some time with the data, think about it. We're going to be doing a lot of episodes that are going to intersect with this over the next year. Um, and we'd love to have you back at some absolutely. point. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Hope, for being on the show. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it.
This special episode of Prognosis Ohio was produced with support for the Center for Community Solutions. It was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Angela Lynn. The music was produced by Kyle Rosenberger. Special thanks to Patty Carlisle at Community Solutions for helping to make the episode possible. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and to check out an archive of past episodes, including episodes that are nice counterparts to today's conversation, please visit our website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. We'll be dropping more great episodes in just a few weeks, so make sure you're subscribed. Please be in touch with us if you have ideas for guests, topics, or ways we can improve the show. In the meantime, we wish you well, and thanks for listening.